BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. It's Friday, January 23rd, 2015, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis. Each week we bring you a new in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at motherjones.com slash inquiringminds, on Twitter at Inquiring Show, and on Facebook at slash Inquiring Minds Podcast. And you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or any other podcasting app. This episode is brought to you by PBS and the premiere of Earth, A New Wild on February 4th. This new five-part series takes you on a journey to explore humankind's relationship with the planet's wildest places and most fascinating species. From reintroducing giant pandas to the wild, to bringing technology deep into the Amazon rainforests, host Dr. M. Sanjayan reveals that when humans and animals get together, wild things happen. Don't miss the premiere of Earth, A New Wild, Wednesday, February 4th at 9, 8 central, only on PBS. This week's episode is also sponsored by Harry's.com. Harry's is less than two years old and is already disrupting the shaving industry by offering a better shaving experience at better value than giants like Schick and Gillette. And Harry's will give you five bucks off your first purchase if you go to harrys.com and use coupon code inquiringminds. That's H-A-R-R-Y-S dot com, coupon code inquiringminds. For those of you that listened to last week's show all the way to the end, you would have heard me sing a snippet of a song by a friend of mine named Brian Holmes about neutrinos. It's based on a poem by John Updike, and I have a corrigendum this week. I talked to Katie Mack after the show, and she informed me that neutrinos, in fact, now we know, do have a little bit of mass. So I'm afraid John Updike's poetry is outdated. So for those of you that have been listening to us for a while, you might have noticed that in the past few months, I've been mainly solo with guest hosts coming in and helping me out. But I'm very pleased to say that we have finally settled on a permanent co-host, and I'm delighted to announce that that co-host is Kishore Hari. Kishore, welcome to Inquiring Minds. It's great to be here. As I've mentioned in the past, Kishore is the director of the Bay Area Science Festival and a nerd herder extraordinaire, but he also has a science background. So Kishore, what is your science background? So I used to be a chemist and I ran a company for a number of years that focused on environmental remediation. And I got to this uh, inflection point where I got to decide what I wanted to uh, do and I retacked towards science education and I have spent the better part of the last decade um getting scientists out in front of public audiences across the Bay Area and across the country, from running science cafes to now running the Bay Area Science Festival. So 
down and down, I'm all about bringing conversations with scientists in front of more and more people. Uh, and uh, it, it's thrilling to, uh, to join Inquiring Minds full time. Well, we're so happy to have you. Do you think in the past 10 years, there's been an increase in interest in science uh, by lay people? Or is it just that we become better at presenting, you know, science in a way that is palatable and interesting? I've found that the interest hasn't shifted a tremendous amount. There's always been crowds and hunger and appetite for it. I've seen refinement in our community, the science communication community, in terms of the quality of the product being represented. Uh, More and more I go to events where the the scientists are better prepared to engage the audiences with them. Uh, They're listening. They're creating avenues for participation from that audience. Um, There's... uh, uh, an ongoing uh, development of more produced content now where it's intermingling entertainment and science or other aspects of culture. So I think it's getting the quality of the the science engagement is just getting better. Uh, and to me, that's incredibly hopeful uh, just from working in practice. I'm excited to see what comes next in terms of the iteration and evolution of of this field. Cool. And one of the reasons that I'm so happy to have you on board with us, too, is that I'm hoping that we can do more live events here at Inquiring Minds, since that's something that you're an expert in. Uh, and it's something that I think, yeah, we can engage with our listeners in a way that's more direct. I love it. I, I can't wait to bring Inquiring Minds to uh, to all of you in in person, because that's the best experience in terms of really engaging with us, you being able to give us direct feedback, and give you direct access to these scientists to ask the questions that we might miss. So for you listeners out there that organize events, if you want to bring Inquiring Minds to your campus or to your organization, shoot us an email and we'll see if we can work it out. So, Kishore, it was your interview this week, so tell us who we've got. This week, I got to interview Brian Fisher, who is the curator of entomology at the California Academy of Sciences, uh, one of the largest collection museums in the world. I first met Brian years ago when I uh, first started my science cafe, and I asked him to come speak about ants. And what he did was he came and presented about ants, but presented them uh, in the format of an online dating site matchmaking for ants, uh, all about like their interests and their sort of quirks and personalities. And uh, every time I've encountered Brian since, he's always intermingling art and science in these really unusual ways, because deep down, he just really has this long-term love affair with ants and wants to get uh, people more engaged in what they really tell us about our environment. Uh, So we really talked about um, uh, his interest in in Africa, where a lot of his ant research goes. And and I have to say, just as an aside, uh, at the Bay Area Science Festival last year, Brian told this incredibly captivating story about contracting malaria on one of his early visits to Africa and being saved by a a group of pygmies in in their village and, and how amidst all of that chaos, he still believes in um, he still has this deep connection to Africa in a way that he wants to um, save the environment there. Yeah, that was at a Story Collider night that I also had the pleasure of sharing the stage with him. And, uh, you know, I, I totally agree with you. He's he, Ants are one of these topics or species that most people think is just, well, why on earth would I want to spend half an hour listening to someone talk about ants? It sounds like torture, right? But Brian makes them so interesting and so... I'm, I'm 2015 is going to be the year of the ant with Ant-Man coming out from Marvel. So thank you, Paul Rudd. Uh, and I have to say, we, w- the most interesting thing we talked about 
is ants being used as almost the canary in the coal mine, identifying parts of the rainforest that need to be prioritized to save because they're such a good bellwether for the ecosystem. Let's listen to this clip. We estimate there's only about 10% left, 10% left of the native forest in Madagascar. Now, the question is, which of those patches of remaining forest should we preserve? And how should we make that decision? Should we just use birds to make that decision? Should we just use data on lemurs to make that decision? My goal is to make that decision using a more holistic approach, to look at ecosystems as a whole and at least look at some of these key elements that are never looked at, like ants, to figure out what do ants say in terms of what are the most important areas to preserve? What are the most threatened areas to preserve? And I'm using Madagascar as a model to go from collecting to understanding to application to actually figure out in Madagascar how we can save Madagascar by understanding ants. One of the things that I absolutely love about Brian is his enthusiasm. <laughs> I mean, when you say love affair with ants, you are not exaggerating. But he also has a love affair with life. I feel that he just is one of these people that just sees everything as being beyond amazing. You know, there are certain scientists who are very skeptical and cynical and tend to always see the holes in whatever argument you're trying to make. Uh, and Brian is the opposite of that. You know, he sees the beauty in all of the things that you and I ignore. I'm really impressed with his um, uh, his efforts in sticking with a collection museum with just half of the uh, species of ants uh, cataloged uh, on this planet. He's really made an effort to say collection museums are important. They have a huge place in this in order for us to retain biodiversity for future scientists to study these ants years down the line in ways that we can't even uh, project now. So that'll be our interview for today. But uh, first, let's talk about a few newsy things. So there's one study that I came across that caught my eye uh, because it's about memory, which is my pet topic. It was published in the journal Legal and Criminology Psychology. And the study was by some researchers from the University of Surrey. The main finding is that when people are trying to remember something, particularly eyewitnesses who are trying to remember the details of a crime, and they close their eyes to do it, they tend to be more accurate and produce more accurate details about whatever it is that happened. Now, the first question that comes to mind is, is, it, is there something in the visual processing that has to do with this? Or can I just plug up their ears because it's a stimulation sort of uh, element that's really having the effect here? You know, I think that's an empirical question. Uh, but I, I do think that vision, of course, is such a dominant sense for the vast majority of us. There's way more cortical real estate devoted to analyzing vision than, say, hearing, for example. So I can imagine why it would be that, you know, closing your eyes and getting rid of that stimulation um, might, in some ways, you, you could argue might release some cognitive resources that normally would be devoted in, to processing vision uh, to recollection, which is a very effortful and active process, right? Um, but I think actually the answer comes from the way in which we remember details of events, and that is in our mind's eye. Most of us actually project up an image of what the scene looked like, and we try to use that to trigger cues of associations that we made while we were experiencing the scene. So if you close your eyes, you don't have any distractions, and you're better able to create this mental image that you can then cull for the information. This study also references uh, an important factor in this isn't just closing your eyes to recall the memory. 
But the person asking the question, person asking you to recall the memory, you have to be comfortable with them. You have to have some sense of rapport. And that has a huge impact on how well the recollection is, which I I found to be so counterintuitive. Like, I'm already closing my eyes. Why does it matter what how comfortable I am with the person asking the question. Yeah, I can see people arguing, well, you're closing your eyes to cut off that interaction with that other person. And, you know, it's kind of a a cold thing to do, right, to sort of remove eye contact, which is how we communicate with each other through our eyes. It's so powerful. Uh, But, you know, that is this other part of the study where essentially they found that if you build rapport with an interviewer, you are more likely to have the benefit of this closing your eyes manipulation. And the authors argue that's because closing your eyes in front of someone kind of puts you in a vulnerable position. It kind of is is an, a thing that you do when you're comfortable with someone. If you're not comfortable with someone, you want to keep your eyes open. You want to keep your eyes on them. You also don't want to, you know, kind of you're more formal with your interactions. Um, so and and so you're less likely to close your eyes if you don't have a good rapport with the person that you're talking to. And that leads to poorer recall. Now, I should say that, you know, this does not mean that eyewitness testimony can be salvaged by closing your eyes. Eyewitness testimony is notoriously unreliable. I don't know how many of you are listening to the podcast Serial. Um, and, you know, you'll hear that the vast majority of the quote unquote evidence that is being used for or against uh, in the case is eyewitness. It's, it's people remembering things. And, and that to me, you know, it's so grating for a memory researcher to read about this because we just know how inaccurate those memories are, especially something that happened, you know, 10, 15 years ago. So we're unlikely to see prosecutors tell witnesses to close their eyes when they're on the stand? Oh, I think we're very likely to see that because I think you'd have to change the justice system, which psychologists have been trying to do for decades and throw out eyewitness testimony. In my opinion, eyewitness testimony should never be permissible in court. But, you know, that requires a huge paradigm shift. I think we have to have a future episode on neuroscience (laughs) and the law. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, we'll eventually have to get Beth Loftus on the show, who's, you know, really um, a giant in this research. So my science news story of the week uh, involves a survey of food attitudes, which made uh, a lot of rounds on the the science blogosphere this week. So, Indre, I'm going to ask you a few questions on your uh, attitudes towards government policies on the following things. Do you favor um, uh, a tax on sugary soda? Yes. Uh, Do you favor or oppose a ban on marijuana use? Um... I'm kind of agnostic about that. Oh, a ban? No. A ban I oppose. On, oppose. Oppose. Ban on trans fats. Favor. Ban on uh, raw milk. Hmm. That's a good question. I'm agnostic. Mandatory calorie labels on restaurant menus. Oh, I like them, but I don't think they should be mandatory. Mandatory labels on foods produced with genetic engineering. You know, I I don't think these that we need to have labels showing genetic engineering because then you'd have to label everything. I mean, every banana I've ever consumed would have to be labeled as a GMO, right? Two more or three more. <laughs> School lunches must contain two servings of fruit and vegetables. That sounds totally lo- reasonable. Mandatory country of origin labels for meat. Yeah, that sounds good. And this is the one that that um, put the science blogosphere in, into a tizzy. 
mandatory labels on foods containing DNA. (laughs) (laughs) Well, every food contains DNA. So, I mean, I don't think there's anything we can possibly eat that doesn't contain DNA. Is there? Can you think of anything? Paper? So even (laughs) uh, our friend Ben Lilly, who runs the Story Collider, did a, a great post on this. And he even posits like, water that we drink probably has some DNA in it because there's microbes that that infiltrate the water. And what was fascinating is so every, a lot of sites picked up on this, like 80% of the country doesn't realize there's DNA in food. How- oh, but wait, because you're saying that people responded saying that they, they are in favor of labeling foods that have DNA as 80% having DNA. 80% responded positive to the mandatory labeling. And so a lot of sites came out and said, like, look how scientifically illiterate the country is. Let's really... Um, you know, revisit this whole notion, ha ha ha, they're kind of stu- uh, stupid. And then a lot of science communicators started to uh, to sort of uh, tease this out. And our friend Ben Lilly did this great post on it, where he goes into the actual survey. So I had you take the survey. Mm-hmm. Almost all of those questions were not about, um, uh, uh, not about sort of your knowledge of food. They're mostly about sort of your attitudes towards governmental policies. And then they have the sort of food knowledge question in the middle of it. And what it sort of comes out in, in sort of consensus now is this is just a bad question. And it was not a good way of measuring do, uh, people's knowledge about food. Now, I'm, I'm sure there's a lot of people out there that do not know that DNA is inside of food in, in most of our food products, you know, excepting like if you're just eating raw sugar which is not the healthiest option there for you, audience. Uh, But the notion that 80% probably don't know is probably flawed. I'm sure it's flawed. Especially, yeah, I think you'd need to unpack that question a little bit. I think people, what... What, what people are responding to in that, of course, is that they want labeling of genetically modified foods. And, that, and that's what's surprising to me is that 80 percent of people still, you know, feel that, gen, modif- you know, labeling foods as having been genetically modified is a useful thing to do. And, you know, I picked up um, a, a can of soda just at the store the other day and looked at all of the information that's labeled on it. It has calorie content on the front, it has calorie content on the side, sugars broken down into different groups, the actual ingredients. I'm a trained chemist, and there was items on there that I didn't know what they were. So I'm not sure more information is necessarily the answer here. Um, I do think it would be really interesting to talk to somebody who talks about the design of how that information is presented, in addition to what information is presented. Yeah, I mean, there's clearly a thirst for knowledge about how where our food comes from. And I'm t- a totally supportive of that. I just don't think labeling something as GM or non-GM is getting us anywhere. It's like, in some ways, I'd say, well, look, let's, let's label the kinds of pesticides that are used in different foods. And people will learn very quickly that organically labeled foods have often been subjected to pesticides, some of which are natural pesticides. But the, you know, the the, the sort of um, maximum dose that the FDA says, you know, that you should ever have in a food for a natural pesticide is often much higher than for a unnatural pesticide like, you know, Roundup. And then there's the whole question of using the word natural, right? Forgetting the information. I mean, I'm I'm not in favor of, of GM labeling for a lot of the reasons you presented. I think we're seeing a lot of um, stores and uh, communities use this as a wedge issue to drive uh, further dis- distrust in the food system, which I think is really dangerous uh, for uh, for the FDA and, and uh, our community as a whole. And so I do think a response needs to come. 
uh, in some way, shape, or form, and soon before that dividing line becomes uh, very difficult to to cross. I I have this concern that we could get into a situation that's similar to the vaccine movement, where we have such a, a strong community that doesn't believe. Uh, or engage with uh, the scientists in any way that would shift their opinion that we're left in in a in a divisive store where we'll have whole stores say we're not selling any GM product, which uh, in a food policy sense is de- detrimental to the world food system. Yeah, and uh, you know I now see a lot of uh, uh, companies using the idea that there is like you know there's no genetically modified foods in this product as a marketing ploy, just the way they use gluten free, right? So like licorice, for example, is now red vines are labeled as gluten free. Well, they've never had gluten, right? It's not like they removed gluten. From I licorice. just want to <laughs> make a note that I love gluten. Like bread <laughs> makes worth life worth living. So I will go to the gluten store if somebody starts it. <laughs> but so you know, so there's this, this kind of. So I, I think someone needs to. And here's a all to scientists, someone needs to come up with a much more informative system of labeling food that people find scary for one reason or another. And and it's not going to be just saying GM or non-GM. It's not going to be, you know, gluten or no gluten. There has to be some other category that we are missing that gives us the information that we need to make the right decisions. I'm not sure that the scientific community is the one to solve that problem. I wouldn't be surprised if uh, uh, the art and design community have a better solution in place in in concert with the scientific well, community. Well, whoever does it needs to be really aware of you know what it is that people want to know, what they're afraid of, and what the science says about whether or not that is something that is a health risk. Okay, um, so let's take a short break, and we'll be back with Kishore's interview with Brian Fisher. Join PBS on Wednesday, February 4th for the premiere of Earth, A New Wild. This new five-part series takes you on a journey to explore humankind's relationship with the planet's wildest places and most fascinating species. From reintroducing giant pandas to the wild, to bringing technology deep into the Amazon rainforests, Host Dr. M. Sanjayan reveals that when humans and animals get together, wild things happen. Don't miss the premiere of Earth, A New Wild, Wednesday, February 4th at 9, 8 central, only on PBS. The holidays are over, and here's the chance to start fresh and start making some smarter decisions. Overpaying for drugstore razor blades is a bad habit that you should leave behind, so make the smart switch to Harry's. Harry's high-quality German-engineered blades are crafted for sharpness and precision. They're half the price of big-name drugstore brands, and they ship them for free straight to your door. And not only that, but one of the reasons I like Harry's razors is they're actually also quite good-looking, and they look very nice on our sink. Their starter set is just 15 bucks, and that includes the razor, three blades, and your choice of Harry's shave cream or foaming shave gel. And personally, I prefer the cream. But as an added bonus, Harry's will give you five bucks off your first purchase if you use our coupon code Inquiring Minds. That's H A R R Y S dot com, coupon code Inquiring Minds. Kickstart your new year and challenge yourself to learn something new with a free 10 day trial to lynda.com. Lynda.com is used by millions of people around the world and has over 3,000 courses on topics like web development, photography, visual design, and business, as well as software training like Excel, WordPress, and Photoshop. All of their courses are taught by experts and new courses are added to the site every week. Whether you want to set new financial goals, find a better work-life balance, 
Invest in a new hobby, ask your boss for a raise, find a new job, or improve upon your current job skills in 2015, lynda.com has something for everyone. Sign up for your free 10-day trial today by visiting lynda.com slash minds. You'll get unlimited access to every course on lynda.com, and you also get access to watch these on tablets, iPhone, and Android mobile devices. They have courses like Getting Things Done, Business Writing Fundamentals, Small Business Secrets, Foundations of Photography. Do something good for yourself in 2015 and sign up for this free 10-day trial to lynda.com by visiting lynda.com slash minds. Learn something new in 2015. Brian Fisher, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Thank you. It's great to be here. So you love the title of Ant-Man and you're taking back the title of Ant-Man from Paul Rudd. What? Why ants? You can't go outside. You can't go into a rainforest and not be, not meet an ant. They're everywhere. We've all met ants, but really, people have a wrong interpretation of what an ant is. To me, ants are like the glue that holds forests together. They're the trash cleaners. They're the they're the everything. They make forest happen. You can't have a forest without ants. So you weren't the kid that had a magnifying glass that was. That was uh, lighting up ants. You saw you had a, you've had a lifelong love affair with them. Well, not just ants, but everything. You know, it's great to be a kid. You're very close to the earth. Kids are the first ones to realize that there is a zillion of little things running the world. But as we get older, we get further and further away, and we forget about them. My goal is to make everybody see ants. Put on these new glasses so that you can actually see what really makes the world work, and it's the little things like the ants. For most people, ants are invisible, but keep listening and you'll begin to see the ants. It seems like ants are part of pop culture. There's a movie, Ant-Man, coming out. Um, uh, ants are in uh, a lot of different elements of culture. I don't feel like they're forgotten, but you have a really different perspective. My goal is to make ants as appreciated, as understood, as important as birds. I want a field guide for every place on earth for ants. I want people to say, we need to save ants to save the planet. That's my goal. So what is it about uh, uh, ants being this you know, refresher, curator, uh, canary, if you will, of the forest um, that we – that we don't really know about yet. Like, can you take us into what ants are actually doing in these ecosystems? Sure. In, in North America, ants are the most important soil makers. In other words, we have great agriculture. We have great ecosystems because we've had great soil. And ants are the number one makers of soil. They turn over more soil than earthworms. And they don't just make tunnels in the ground. They mix up the soil and turn it around and 40% of the annual plants in the northeast of the U.S. are dispersed by ants. You say, what? Dispersed? Well, these plants have a little special treat on each of their seeds that are really tasty for ants. And the ants take that little seed and take that and eat the treat in their nest, leaving that seed in a nice, rich trash pile that can grow up and be another trillium the next year. And how many species of ants are we talking about in the in the world uh, and in North America when you're referencing this? Well, we estimate there's a thousand species in North America of ants. There are still many to describe, maybe over like 150. But worldwide, we estimate there are 30,000 species of ants. But we've only 
documented and described half of them. So we have a lot of work to do, especially in the tropics. The tropics, the rainforest, we all like rainforest, but we can't have a rainforest without ants. You can't walk into a rainforest without meeting the ants everywhere, doing everything. And that's what's so interesting about ants. They just don't do one thing. They do everything. They've evolved to be mutualists. They live inside plants. They evolved to be seed dispersers. They evolved to be top predators like the army ants. They've actually were the first farmers. They evolved farming about 60 million years ago. The leafcutter ants, for example, that you all seen these pictures of carrying leaves through the forest. They're not going to eat the leaves. They're going to feed those leaves to a fungus and they're going to eat the fungus. It's a brilliant invention. You paint ants as a really social creature. I'm curious about their evolutionary history and what their closest relatives are in modern times. People often think of like ants and termites being together, but that's not true. Termites evolved from cockroaches, but termites are social. Ants evolved from wasps. They evolved from a flying creature to a non-flying creature. Right. So the cousin of the ant, the early ant was like a wasp and it became social and there are some social wasps like bees, and they evolved this wingless worker caste. And that's what you see running around all the time, foraging for food, building the nest. Now, those workers, they don't have wings, but the queen still has wings. Well, usually she does. And after she mates, she gets rid of her wings and goes in the ground and starts her nest. And now all those workers you see, they're actually sisters. They're all female. And they start their life inside the nest. And as they grow old, they may live about two years. They take on jobs, taking care of the babies, taking out the trash, cleaning the, making new nests. And as they get older, they take on jobs, different jobs, until they get near the top of the nest. And only then, when they're an old lady, do they actually leave the nest to forage. So think of that the next time you're going to squash, squash an ant on your kitchen counter, that it's an old lady. It's one of the elders. And when you say old, give us a, a timeline. How long do ants live and what are we talking about in terms of this old lady? Well, the worker ants are like leaves on a tree. There's constant turnover and they live about two years. While the queen, the queen ant who's protected inside the nest could live about 35 years. 35 years, is that seems like an incredibly long time for any insect. Is that true? Yes. In fact, termites and ants are the most long-lived insects, the queens. Does the queen still have a purpose for those wings? Well, they have to disperse. They have to mate, and that's part of the dispersal process. But after dispersing, they go and have a very sophisticated society. And that's really the thing that makes ants interesting in a sense is that like humans, they have many of the same problems. they got to figure out food transport, communication, and ants have to work together to do that. Now, we might have thought before that there was this queen telling all the worker ants what to do, but that's not the case. It's this beautiful formation of these network systems that produce this greater whole, the ant colony. We call it the superorganism. To understand ants, you really have to understand them as a superorganism. Now, in this superorganism, they've developed really good problem-solving skills to figure out how to food transport, how to communicate. 
But to understand them, when you watch them, try this at home. You can take cookie crumbs and put them on the kitchen counter and watch the ants. And they're going to have to solve problems. They're going to have to like find the food and they're going to have to take the food back to the nest. Now, what if you were an ant and you were really hungry and you found this juicy little cookie or little caterpillar? Would you hide behind a little rock and eat it yourself or would you take it back to the nest? I would 100% eat it myself. Lucky you're not an ant because ants can't eat it. To understand ants, you have to understand where is the stomach of this superorganism. Adult ants can't eat solid food. They have to take the food back to the nest to feed it to the stomach. The stomach are the babies, the larvae. The larvae are the only ones that can eat solid food. So they take food back to the nest and the larvae eat the caterpillar or the cracker or the seed Now they have a problem. How do they take that energy inside the larva and distribute it throughout the entire nest? So they have this magic. They have this thing called trophallaxis. Trophallaxis. It's when the larva regurgitates food and an ant, a few ants, drink it all up. They can drink. They just can't eat. And they put it in their social stomach that balloons out like a balloon and they go around offering food, liquid, to the other workers and even the queen. So the queen doesn't even have to go out to get a cheeseburger. It comes to her in her little protected corner of the nest and they feed her. You can try this at home if you want, where your sister would regurgitate food to another sister and transfer it around. I I don't have an extra social stomach, so I'm going to avoid doing that. But this notion, you call it a social stomach, is that that stomach's singular purpose for this ant? Right. It's actually... um, Not their own stomach, so they would have to transfer it to the other stomach to actually eat it. Now, this social stomach is a wonderful invention, and some ants have taken it to the extreme. For example, the honeypot ants. There's a group of ants in the United States from as close as Sacramento down to Mexico. These honeypot ants, they live in the drier desert environments, and during that moment of plenty, they will stuff a few of the workers until their social stomach balloons out a giant balloon. And these worker ants then hang from the ceiling for the rest of their lives like a refrigerator and other ants can go up to them during that period of no food and tickle them and they will regurgitate nice honeydew. And you can go in the desert. And when I teach a course down in Arizona, we dig them up and we share them in the class. It's a wonderful little treat, these honeypot ants. With these, that's kind of a complex superorganism you describe, the colony sort of thinking as one, but being separated into all these individuals. I imagine communication is incredibly complex amongst ants. Is everything sort of just pre-coded in them, or are they constantly communicating back and forth? Organisms like this, where there's little subparts, like human society, don't work unless there's massive communication. And the more communication, the better. Ants have words like we have words. They have like 10 to 15 unique words, and but they communicate by chemicals. Ants are like little chemical factories. They have these glands that produce a chemical that's called a pheromone. It's like perfume. And they hear these words with their antenna. Their antenna are like chemical receptors, and they can perceive these chemicals. How did you come to the conclusion they have like 10 to 15 words? That's a, the, how many pheromones they're, they're producing? Right. That's about how many different pheromones they're producing. And that's a probably a lowball estimate because the more we look at ants, the more amazing glands we discover in the strangest places. 
And are there other communities of insects or even mammals that operate in this kind of way that ants are doing in this in, in this colony function? Well, every society has to have communication. So all levels of this kind of organization of, of um, societies, from termites to ants to groups of um, naked mole rats, they all have to figure out communication. It's a fundamental thing. So there's a lot that we're learning about ant colonization structure that's applying forward to other um, societal structures that uh, in other insects and creatures. Right, and especially ants have been great at kind of really opening up our idea of maybe how our brain works in terms of neural networks and so forth. Ants have provided great information about how to ship bites through the internet, how to organize um, the distribution of food to grocery stores, to even understanding how to develop artificial intelligence algorithms. It's all from because ants have been solving these problems. I mean, ants as a whole are maybe 150 million years old. That's 150 million years of evolutionary problem solving that we can look at and actually learn something from. And that's why, as a whole, it's a shame to think about insects and things going to extinct. We're really losing books in this library that we haven't even opened yet. Uh, this is a perfect segue back to something you said earlier, which is you're on a mission of trying to document the rest of the ant species. We've only, we're only about halfway there. Uh, what do you hope to gain um, from documenting that half of the species that we don't already know about ants? I mean, documenting half of an entire uh, you know, uh, area uh, uh, of the of the tree seems like that's actually more progress than I actually expected that we've done about ants. Um, so, what do you what are you sort of looking at towards when you're looking to the back half of this taxonomy? Well, as a biologist who's gone to the field, uh, I work in Madagascar and. You can't go to Madagascar without realizing that you have to do something and something quick to help save the remaining forest. We, all, we estimate there's only about 10% of left, 10% left of the native forest in Madagascar. Now, the question is, which of those patches of remaining forest should we preserve? And how should we make that decision? Should we just use birds to make that decision? Should we just use data on lemurs to make that decision? My goal is to make that decision using a more holistic approach, to look at ecosystems as a whole and at least look at some of these key elements that are never looked at, like ants, to figure out what do ants say in terms of what are the most important areas to preserve? What are the most threatened areas to preserve. And I'm using Madagascar as a model to go from collecting to understanding to application to actually figure out in Madagascar how we can save Madagascar by understanding ants. How long have you been working in Madagascar? For about 20 years. I, I got this really strong sense when you just mentioned it earlier that uh, that place holds a lot of meaning for you beyond just the fact that you've been working there for 20 years. Is that right? Madagascar is super special. Now, as a biologist, it's like a dream. You, it's like its own experiment um, on life. It is a is a continental landmass, Madagascar, that broke away from Africa about 120 million years ago, and then India broke away about 80 million years ago. So Madagascar has been on its own trajectory. So everything there is unique, and surprisingly, when I went there. 
I was shocked at how little we knew about this place and also shocked at how fast it's disappearing. So I set really a mission to really try to understand the biodiversity of that and give voice to the little things that don't have voice, like the insects, the arthropods. At the same time, I was really struck how beautiful the people are, how interesting they are. And unlike maybe the rest of our societies, they arrived from Borneo, we think, about 2,000 years ago and evolved their own unique society. They're beautiful people, and I want to help them understand their world, their forest, and help them um, conserve it. Are they invested in the same uh, preservation mission that you have in the same way? I imagine this has been their homeland for 2,000 years, that it's uh, they have a complicated relationship with their home. Right. Like like any recent colonization event, they brought land use practices that did not evolve locally. They brought rice cultivation and then later cattle herding. So it's really a way to figure out how to efficiently have society be healthy and at the same time preserve that incredible heritage. It's really a question of long-term versus short-term gains for that society. And we're trying to help them find that balance of you know, investing in the long-term, you know, functioning ecosystems, clean water, clean air, clean energy. And those are the things we all need. People forget that we're all, you know, just like all animals and that we do need clean energy, clean food, clean water, that we can't exist. It, You know, nature doesn't need us. We need nature. And we got to find that balance. So you found many allies in Madagascar for the search for ants. It must have taken a little bit of convincing the first time through. Because this is, I, I sort of bristle at the notion myself when if somebody came in and said, we're going to save the rainforest, let's look at some ants. What was that process like trying to convince the, these folks that ants were worthy to be looked at as a, a marker for preserving the, the tropical rainforest there? Right. It, t- it took a while to convince even students and researchers to get on board, but we basically had the same team now for 15 years. But when we go to the field, it's quite interesting. The locals are very dubious that we're actually looking for ants. They think we must be looking for some rare element like gold or titanium or something that um, is out there in that forest. So they always think that there's no way we would make this incredible trek and hike so far just to find ants. But after about two weeks in the field with them, they've turned into the best ant collectors, and they're excited about these discoveries. How do you collect ants? It's probably not the twig in the in the ant hill mound that I used when I was a kid. No, that's what chimpanzees use. Um, we have more sophisticated oh, areas. <laughs> we actually have invented many techniques, and we have this technique where we extract all insects from the leaf litter. We, it's all the leaves on the ground. We sift it and we take that sifted litter and hang it in a trap. And overnight, all the insects come out and we look at all the insects. And we have what's called a malaise trap. It's like a tent that's in the forest and flying insects hit it and they get trapped and we capture all the flying insects, including those flying queens, flying male ants. And we also beat vegetation and knock down all the ants onto a white tarp that we collect. But the real fun is going out with a machete and digging into rotten logs, breaking twigs, and digging in the ground and finding the ant colonies where you can observe them, 
learn their behaviors and find out how they make a living, you know, what they do. And when our ant colleagues, do they have sort of normal uh, timelines over the course of the day? They, they follow like um, some sort of like sleep patterns or are they active 100% of the time throughout the day? They have peak levels of activity during the hot, dry periods. They're less active at night. Sometimes they're active. Some ants aren't. But they do have a seasonality. And that's why we go in the most inappropriate time to go to Madagascar. We're going to the monsoon season when it rains a lot, when trans, when just getting to the forest is an ordeal. In fact, on this trip, we'll spend more than half of this next two months getting to the forest than actually in the forest. So we have to budget more than half the time just in getting to the forest because it involves driving and then it involves hiking and hiking and hiking. Because if you can get there easily, there's no forest left in Madagascar. We're going to remote places and there's forest left because it's difficult to get to. And then when you get there, do you, I, I sort of have this uh, vision of, of you like a, all cinched up in in your raincoat with a monsoon beating down around you, um, just sitting with an ant colony all day and night. <laughs> That's pretty much it. And we're just so thankful to get there. I mean, this is 19th century exploration where we go into villages, convince them to work with us, hire a group of 20 to 30 people as porters, and off we hike. These people may not have know where we're going, but they may take us to the next village where we'll switch porters and we'll go and work our way toward this mountain. We have no maps of and of where we're going. We're just going to this large mountain. On my next trip to Madagascar, I'll be repeating a trip that happened in the 60s where these French scientists collected something very interesting. Nobody's been back to this mountain since. We don't even know how to approach the mountain um, we know probably that there's a lot less forest there. The French established six camps and one on the summit. And we'll be trying to retrace those steps and we'll see at what camp we actually do find forest. My hunch, the first three to four camps that they have had um, will have no forest left. This all sounds incredibly terrifying to a person like me. Maybe I'm just a resident, not a resident explorer. But to you, this seems thrilling, this notion of going out on an adventure like this, going back to a mountain that hasn't been seen by human feet for 200 years. It's completely the unknown, right? And it could be a bust, right? We may not be able to find the logistic support. We may not even get close enough to, I mean, our maximum of hiking is about 200 kilometers to get to the mountain. So if we can't drive within 200 kilometers of the mountain, it really makes it logistically complicated. But that's our goal. So we have to go prepared to actually have everything organized that will maximize um, hope. And I, maybe this is um, a little bit myopic, but uh, I am at, you're going to some place that humans haven't been for a long time. That sounds a little bit dangerous. How do you prepare for something like this? Do you have like a medic with you? Do you, do you just sort of uh, imagine you're going on a, on a two pack for a two month camping trip and pack all of, all of those uh, gear items. But I imagine there's so much unknown that comes up. How do you sort of handle that? Well, every day is unknown and you have to be the person ready to be challenged by these unknowns every single day. Now, there are risks, and the risk in terms of the mission, we don't even get to a forest. We hope not. That's only happened once in the last 20 years in Madagascar, where we were trapped by a monsoon for 13 days, and we never got to the forest. 
Um, but in terms of this safety, we do have precautions. We've done this many times. We do have within our group, we have radios to communicate if there's trouble. And we do have satellite connections um, so that we can call in an SOS if there is trouble. Now, in terms of medical support, um, there's different philosophies you can have in terms of handling that. And we have enough to handle the uh, minor problems, but we also have, you know, like morphine. In the worst case, we want to just get that person out and we can use some kind of sedatives to get that person out if they're really hurt. Have you encountered any difficulties, let's just put it mildly, on any of these um, these treks? I imagine vehicles have been stuck. Um, you've been trapped out in, in rains. You've probably encountered... Um, certain species at at times that weren't um, weren't the best, right? I mean, working. I've worked all over Africa, and in like in the Congo Basin, we've been trapped in war, had escape, being trapped, and um, in fact, we did that as a live blog. It was an exciting time to be blogging our escape route as we went out of um, capture in Central African Republic during a coup. But in Madagascar, it's a little bit tamer, but still, there's risks. Now, for example, we'll be going to an area known for the Dahalo. Those are the cattle thieves. And cattle thievery is this kind of mystified arrangement in Madagascar where the youth in the Dahalo tribe have to, uh, each one has to steal a cattle during their, uh, rite of passage into manhood. And that's created a lot of fear amongst all the other, uh, tribes around there. So to combat that, we actually are bringing somebody from that tribe with us on the trip. He's a member of our group, of our research team now. So he'll be our liaison in case we do encounter any, any cattle thieves from Dahalu during this trip. So we have that covered, we feel, that we won't be threatened by the Dahalu tribe. And do are you able to use any new technology when it comes to actually being out in the field to uh, to help aid this this hunt? Because I imagine going to a, a location and suddenly finding there's no forest is not uh, a great use of, of time. Are, have you been able to use technology in any way to to speed up the collection process or identify areas that you really want to study? Yes, there's this new tool that is essential for being a modern explorer now. And it's actually we've been working with satellite companies to actually take a recent image of uh, the area we're going to visit. And they're not available on Google Earth. There's new images that gives an up-to-date information about forest extent. And then we work with team, a team at Google Earth to actually put that in a mobile version of the Google Earth so that we can actually track ourselves as we're hiking live. And so that we can actually say, just like you navigate through a city, like, oh, if we go left here, we'll get to a better forest. Or we better not camp here. We better not let the porter say stop here because we got to keep them going to get to really good forest. <laughs> That's amazing. You have GPS basically out in in this forest for hunting ants. But it requires a lot of help from these satellite companies. Now, for my next trip, uh, we're are still challenged by this. We found out that um, we don't have support yet from a satellite company. And we're trying to now negotiate with some new satellite companies in uh, who have taken, who've just opened up a whole new realm of concept of how to take imagery of the earth. And we'll be meeting with them this week to see if they'll help us out. And when it comes down to um, the actual observations of the ants, are you collecting a bunch and bringing them back here? Or is all of your 
uh, analysis done in Madagascar as well. So one part of this trip is to collect and figure out what's there. So we collect it. We put them in alcohol. We'll sequence them. We'll study them. Another part is to understand behavior. So we capture a lot of live colonies, maybe 50 to 75 live colonies. And those we take them back and we have a team of collaborators that will study them, understand their form of reproduction, how the, how the interactions work in the colony, because it's different. The kind of story I gave you about how ants work well, actually, every species does it differently. There's a modification of it. And I imagine you find new species fairly often, given that's one of the goals of this trip. Uh, do you get to come back to a collection museum and, and actually store them in the collection here permanently? Yes. One goal is to actually kind of open up the study of ants in Madagascar. And the first step is to describe new species. We've discovered already about 1,000 new species of ants in Madagascar. And we're busy describing them. In fact, in 2014, we described 110 new species from Madagascar. Do you have one named after yourself yet? Well, I don't name ants after myself, but other scientists have named other insects after me that I've collected in Madagascar. Oh, that, so there is a like a Brian Fisher ant out there? What is it? Well, there's not a Brian Fisher ant. There Actually, there are some Fisheri ants in Africa. Um, described by colleagues. But in Madagascar, they've described moss, beetles um, after me. Um, so because I collect all insects and ship them to about 180 entomologists around the world, and they kind of, in a sense, thank me for those collections by naming something after me. So fast forward um, years, uh, you've been doing this for 20 years. The way you talk about it, I can tell you're going to be doing it for another 20. You're not going to quit this uh, endless search. Uh, what do you sort of hope your the legacy of, of this 19th century um, scientific expeditions uh, that you uh, that you go on in in a 21st century world um, really leaves as an imprint on, on in the scientific community? Well, the study of ants, of course, will be greatly advanced by these collections I'm making. But more so, I hope that the public will actually start seeing more than just the big trees in a rainforest, more than just the birds, we start seeing the little things that really help make that forest work and find beauty in it and appreciate it and find them wonderful. It's going to be really our generation that decides how much of this forest is going to be left. It's the defining challenge of our time. With, you know, seven plus billion people on earth, we have to make a decision soon. What's going to be preserved What's not? And I want people to realize that in that forest holds these amazing organisms with great stories, each making a living in a different way. And at the same time, those stories could be beneficial to us. Millions and millions of years of problem solving that may help our society, let alone provide these important services. I mean, take a breath. <gasps> Doesn't it feel good to breathe? These forests are our breath. They're the lungs of the planet. We need them. They don't need us, but we need them. I think that's a, a great point to end on. Thank you for being on Inquiring Mind. Great to be here. May the ants be with you. <laughs> great interview, Kishore. It just makes me 
feels so warm inside to hear Brian's enthusiasm over and over and over again. Uh, and I have to say, you know, so my husband and I have been struggling with an ant problem in our house as we speak. I mean, you know, when the rain started coming in San Francisco, some little tiny ants got in and we have tried our darndest to get rid of these things. Like you got magnifying glasses out and everything? <laughs> no. So we use a product called Taro, which is, you know, a, it's a, it's a insecticide and we put it down and it, it's supposed to attract the ants and then they, you know, eat a bit of this and then they take it back to their nest and it's supposed to kill the nest, which we thought was a great idea, right? Now, I just have this fear that like, okay, first of all, the tarot hasn't been super effective and ants keep coming back. Um, but what if we kill that we do kill their nest and all of a sudden our house falls down? Like it's like the, you know, what if they are the foundation of our house? I like that there's a set of ants out there that are outsmarting two adults with PhDs. Uh, that's what I, that's that's what actually I took away. There is a complexity to their society that sums up much greater than their individual strengths, and that's my fascination with ants. Is you know I know some people view them as pests, and rightfully so. When ants infiltrate, they are relentless because they're a hive mind, and they just keep sending the army once they learn. But uh, I think there is something to be said for that that complexity that we can apply to other fields. Uh, I was recently at a demonstration at UCSF using these things called kilobots, these simple robots that can be programmed with three commands, but when you get a lot of them together, can swarm and mm. do uh, all sorts of complicated tasks that you wouldn't expect from uh, from a simple design. And so they've been able to engineer these kilobots into into mim into biomimicry, where they, there's a great video of them taking the form of a starfish from just three commands that they have in between them, uh, and move like a starfish moves. So I think there's really something there for us to learn from the complexity of ant society that can apply to other fields. Um, that well, we didn't really get into with Brian. Yeah, I mean, there's this whole um, field of machine learning where ants have been very influential, right? Where they, you know, they actually use the um, example of ants uh, and in terms of how they develop or emerge uh, uh, these behaviors as they build their colony, etc. Um, and, you know, they, they develop these codes in which then the code kind of grows the way an ant colony would and the machine actually begins to show learning, which I think is really fascinating. You'd think, you know, ants are so simple and they're so stupid and blah, blah, blah. And yet here they are teaching our computers how to learn. So, you know, they really might take over the world. <laughs> Let's hope not. Let's hope not. But I applaud Brian's effort to uh, uh, to really uh, educate and and conserve the ant population. It, it's a really fascinating lifelong endeavor for him to try to catalog as many species as possible before their their environment disappears. And he's really personable. So if you're ever in the Bay Area, go to the California Academy of Sciences, which is an amazing museum. You can go to the rooftop garden and, you know, see some of his work in action and go and ask for him. And, you know, he'll probably, if he has a couple minutes, come out and tell you a little bit more about ants. So that's it for another episode. I want to thank you for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds. You can visit our website at motherjones.com slash inquiringminds. You can find us on Twitter at Inquiring Show, on Facebook at slash Inquiring Minds Podcast. And you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas, ways in which you've been effective at killing your ant problem, anything else you'd like to inquiringminds at climatedesk.org. Once again, this episode is brought to you by PBS and the premiere of Earth, A New Wild on February 4th. This new five-part series takes you on a journey to explore humankind's relationship with the planet's wildest places and most fascinating species. 
From reintroducing giant pandas to the wild to bringing technology deep into the Amazon rainforests, host Dr. M. Sanjayan reveals that when humans and animals get together, wild things happen. Don't miss the premiere of Earth, A New Wild, Wednesday, February 4th at 9, 8 central, only on PBS. And this episode is sponsored by Harry's.com. Harry's is less than two years old and is already disrupting the shaving industry, offering a better shaving experience at better value than giants like Schick and Gillette. And Harry's will give you five bucks off your first purchase if you go to harrys.com and use coupon code inquiringminds. That's H-A-R-R-Y-S.com, coupon code inquiringminds. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac in cooperation with Climate Desk, a journalistic collaboration in partnership with The Atlantic, the Center for Investigative Reporting, The Guardian, Grist, Mother Jones, Slate, Wired, and The Huffington Post. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Sheehan. And we're your hosts. I'm Indre Viscontis. I'm Kishore Hari. See you next week. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.